Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. My name is Gavriel Hakoen. I'm here, as always, with my BFF, IFB cult survivor, Sadie Carpenter. How are you doing today, Sadie Carpenter? I am. I'm doing great. This is an episode that I've been planning out for a really long time, and I'm really excited to finally get to it. Yeah, I, I remember when we first started talking about doing it, and you're just like, we need to wait on this one because I need to get all my your thoughts in order I guess, a lo- about yeah, yeah a lot of this is my personal theories on things and my own observations so with ptsd brain those things tend to be they're all in my brain but they're scattered to different locations and i have to bring them all to the same location well i'm really happy about the way that this one is going to go i'm really excited to do this um and I'm really just happy to be talking about this topic to begin with, because what we're talking about today is why people joined cults, why people joined fundamentalism to begin with. Right. What are some of the common chain reactions as far as life experiences go? And how do normal people like you and me end up fundamentalist? We're going we're gonna to get deep into all of that. Right, because you were born into it. So you this isn't your experience. This is what you've seen happen with other people. Right. So last week we talked about Paul and Morgan Oligus. We talked about Kelly Havens. We're two Christian fundamentalism influencer channels. And I would say that they're on pretty much the opposite ends of the spectrum of like vibes. You know what I'm yes. saying? Like one is yeah, one's very clickbaity, one's very topic oriented trying to come in with the hot take on whatever the issue of the day is. And the other is 
deeply unconcerned with that sort of BS, concerned primarily with overarching lifestyle themes, neo-romanticism, two, just two very different channels, that, but they do share some commonalities. Yes. So first, I want to give an update. Paul and Morgan did have their baby last time we were recording, actually, while she was in labor. Everybody is healthy and fine. They had complications that required going to the hospital, but thankfully, they did have the good sense to transfer to the hospital, which was the thing that I think a lot of us were worried about. I'm so glad they had the good sense to do that. I'm so glad everybody is safe. Their personal and political views are absolutely despicable, but I cannot wish for a bad outcome for a pregnant person or for their baby. I can smile to myself at that how much Morgan would hate being described as a pregnant person, but I cannot wish for a bad outcome for her or her baby. <laughs> so as far as like what do Paul and Morgan and Kelly have in common, at one point they were all living what seemed like very average lives. Religion was certainly a part of their lives long term, but it did not dominate their lives. It did not dominate their social media usage. And over the past few years, they've slipped deeper and deeper into their religious views, and they've changed their lifestyles drastically and become more and more strict and dogmatic over time. And we've talked about this before, how fundamentalists of all brands and camps and uh, all parts of fundamentalism tend to become stricter over time. A major hallmark of modern fundamentalism is separation from the world. But the common thought that I see preached from all sorts of different parts of fundamentalism is, well, as the world becomes more and more wicked, we have to become more and more separated and more holy. Some of the people that we've talked about on the show, like the Rodriguez family and the Anderson family, have always been fundamentalists, and they didn't have much stricter that they could become, but they've just become a little bit stricter over time. But many of the people that we've talked about on this show, including Michelle Duggar and Kim Plath and even Rusty and Andrea Yates, started much more mainstream and then rapidly became stricter and stricter. And why did that happen? How did that happen? So that takes us to today's topic. Yeah, we're going to talk about how and why people become fundamentalists and what I think the role of adverse life experiences may be in that. So before we get into that, I just need to say the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult, the cult in which she was raised. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism in general. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you are a fan of our show, there are some things that you can do to support us. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast, and you will get access to an extended and uncensored and ad free version of this podcast. You can join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. You can join our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. Is there anything else that I got to say before we get into just doing the episode? Um, you can subscribe to our show on whatever podcast listening platform you typically listen on so that it's automatically downloaded and ready to go for you on Monday morning. Uh, other than that, I think we're good to go. 
thank the Faith Promise Missions patrons. Yeah, um, Faith Promise Missions and I gave it all. Yeah, I gave it all to your patrons. Still the same two as the past few weeks, Melissa Mosley and Kathleen Moncrief. I am as excited that you have joined the Faith Promise Missions tier Patreon as I was to find out that there is a wine called Gavi. Uh, which this, this was a lot of excitement. Yes, <laughs> I'm. I'm very excited about the fact that there is a wine called that. I have the same name as a wine. I'm thinking about like buying the wine and giving it to people as host gifts. Anyway, you, you guys, I, I love you guys as much as I love the fact that I have the same name as a kind of wine. But our faith promise missions tier patrons are Alex Todd, Anisha Patel, Brittany, Brooke Tully, Carrie R, Krissa comedian big sexy yeah justin bauman yeah crystal patterson dear ethan hansen the musical <laughs> eleanor donahue elizabeth deworth emery fairlosser my actual bff meg hannah ross the lady rabbi jen kaharski jessica tambo jonna cat hedberg K. Terwee, Catherine Schneider, Kristen Marie, Lauren Vanderwall, Linda Morgan, Lindsay Goss, Michaela Upright, Madeline Antrim, Madeline Cusick, Marlena Stuve, Mary Martin, Megan Arendt, Mike Smith, Miranda Day, Rachel Bernadowitz, Rebecca Hoyt, Reverend Robert Stutz, Sarah Reese. Shane Horton, Stephanie Johnson, Susie. Oh, is this a brand new one? Tara McNamara. Holy crap. I think brand it's new. McNamara. McNamara. Is Isn't it, it McNamara or McNamara? I don't know. In the I've, song, I've heard it's it McNamara's ones. band. Da, 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 da. You don't know huh. that song because you didn't grow up watching Lawrence Welk like I did. No, I didn't. It could be either one, though. So, uh, Tara, please get in contact with us and tell us which one it is. Tiffany Enderby, 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 Walnut, Son of Walnut, Wes the Cowboy. Thank you all. We love you all. You guys are all so special. And thank you to all of our regular patrons, too, our, our uh, offering and tithe patrons as well. Yeah, thank you so much, of course, to our Faith Promise Missions, and I gave it all to your patrons, but to all of the patrons who keep us going. We're so thankful. So Sadie, do you want to hit us with that TW and then get us on our way? I always want to hit people with a TW. At this point in life, I use them like in regular conversations because, <laughs> <clears throat> because everything I talk about is triggering. To somebody. Yeah. And I would rather just give people a heads up and use conversational consent than potentially hurt somebody. I don't want to do that. So in general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show, included but including but not limited to suicide and mental health, racism, misogyny, PTSD, PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical, sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will vaguely mention at least a few of those topics, but we avoid graphic detail unless it's relevant to the story that we're telling in that particular episode. We also do our best to give you a heads up before we go into detail on any of those topics. Uh, we encourage using the skip button when needed for your mental health. <laughs> just hmm. that little 30 second skip ahead. Just do it if you need it. <laughs> this episode will briefly mention 
miscarriage, infertility, the death of a young child, families that struggle with addiction, unstable family dynamics, and various types of child abuse. No detail really on those. We will be going into detail on cult manipulation tactics like love bombing and other forms of coercion. So one of the most common things that I get asked is why do people become fundy? People assume that people who become fundamentalist after previously not being fundamentalist are, they assume that those people are stupid. They assume that those people are extremely gullible. And that happens uh, with people who are less intelligent or very gullible, but that's not the, that's not the majority of fundamentalists. People cannot figure out why someone who was previously living a normal life would submit to dress code changes, lifestyle changes, and so much work that being a fundamentalist entails. Why would a mother who was previously happy with her career quit to become a stay-at-home mom for religious reasons? Why would a family who was previously happy with their summer Sundays spent out on the lake sell their boat to pay for their kids' Christian school? Why does this happen? So I think that you made a good point when you're saying that not all these fundamentalists are stupid people. Mm -hmm. Like your dad, I met him, very, very, very smart person, decided to join fundamentalism after he was already an adult. Mm -hmm. Um a very young adult, but yes. I mean, if our, our listeners remember a couple of weeks ago, I played an audio clip um, of a prank Sadie's father played on me uh, when we had lunch together. It was uh, really a, a marvelous memory. But that day, I had a conversation with him, and I asked him why he decided to join fundamentalism, because I was genuinely curious. And I would love for you to tell me and tell the audience what he had to say, if you remember. Yeah, so this is what he said to me. Um, and I'm paraphrasing, and this is based on my memory, which, as far as conversations go, is usually pretty good. Yeah, uh, kind of but... freakishly good sometimes. Really? Oh, don't okay. tell Gavi something I, I, you don't want him to remember. I, I remember a lot of things. It's not a good idea. So one is that uh, so he'd always been a Christian. Um, I think he told me he was a Methodist mm -hmm. beforehand. Yeah, uh, but when he was a young man in his 20s, the pastor at his church was involved with some sort of scandal. I can't remember the nature of the scandal, but it was some sort of immorality. And what he told me was that his reaction was to seek out a form of Christianity that had stronger moral convictions. And that's when he discovered Jack Hiles through a Christian bookstore. Is is, is that consistent for you? Uh, I, I mean, I'm sure that I you've heard him tell this story numerous times. Yes. So it wouldn't have been the pastor at his church because he was a pastor at the time, but maybe you're thinking of the bishop that was over him. That might have been who it was or a pastor at a nearby church, maybe. I would add, in addition to the scandals that were going on in Methodism, my dad also felt like Methodism was losing the fire and the drive that the denomination once had. And if you knew my dad, <laughs> you knew that he was not a fan of doing things half ass at all. No. <laughs> so absolutely you, not. No. <laughs> uh, anyone who has ever called me extra, which is a lot of people, <laughs> you need to be aware where this came from <laughs> because I am the daughter of the most extra person that I have ever known. Man. But you have to remember, that. my dad got saved under the preaching of a wild Methodist evangelist who wore a white shirt, a white suit, a black shirt, and a white tie. <laughs> he, <laughs> he, this evangelist, and I can't remember his name off the top of my head, he sang a song called 
drop kick me Jesus through the goalpost of life. <laughs> and this evangelist that was like instrumental in my dad's story of becoming a stronger Christian, his faith story, he ran up and down across the stage and kicked over microphone stands and pounded a pulpit just like any Baptist. And that's like, that's what he identified with in Methodism. Like, I honestly, I did not know that Methodists got down like that because the, I mean, the university that I went to was at one point a Methodist university, but then it became a secular university. I always thought of Methodists as kind of like the gin and tonic of American Protestants. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. The Baptists are a shot of flaming Bacardi 151. And that's exactly the point, though. Because back in the day, the Methodists did get down like that. Remember, the Bob Jones University episode, Bob Jones was raised partially Methodist. A lot of the big revival, we've talked so much about like traveling revival evangelists, and a lot of them were Methodists. And Methodist salvation theology, a lot of their theology tends to be really similar to Baptist. It's just a, just a hair off one way or the other. Uh, like their baptismal rite is different. And that's one big difference between them and Baptists because Methodists sprinkle in general and Baptists immerse always. So I was thinking about when we watched, uh, when you had me watch Sheffy. Mm-hmm. Sheffy wanted to be a Methodist minister, but they wouldn't let him be a Methodist minister. I think he ended up being what, a congregationalist? I don't know what he ended up being, but that was, uh, so I always thought that, okay, well, that tracks with what I thought because the Methodists were maybe a bit more a bit less extra than whatever he ended up being. He w- They weren't going to be the ones going out and doing the the revival services in the same way that he ended up doing. I thought that was a juxtaposition that they were trying to do, uh, but I guess I was wrong about that misconception on my part. Well, Sheffy isn't exactly the clearest narrative. <laughs> it's a bit winding. So there was definitely a time in history when Methodists were extremely evangelical and had a bit more flair in their services. But the problem that my dad had by the time he was like 22, 23 and about to graduate from seminary at Huntington College, the Methodists had adopted what you now know as Methodism, this very quiet, meek presentation of their denomination. No yelling and pounding pulpits. We're all very theological and very scholarly and looking down our nose through our glasses at you. And my dad was a 23-year-old guy. He missed this more bombastic presentation in church services. And while a lot of Methodists were using that new, quieter presentation to be extremely compassionate, I think some of the most compassionate Christians I know are Methodists. Others of them were using it to be very dry and overly scholarly and kind of going over everybody's heads. Ivory Tower. Yes, very. And it's um, probably what's going to split the Methodist convention even further, if you ask me, not that I know anything. So my dad was not, he was seeking a form of Christianity with stronger moral convictions because he was disappointed with the moral standards that he perceived in Methodism. But he also didn't want to be Ivory Tower. He had all of the intelligence and scholarship to do that if he wanted, but he wanted to reach people in a very real and personal way as a minister. So, And then you're correct with the rest of the story. He found John R. Rice and Jack Hiles through a Christian bookstore that sold their books and sermon cassette tapes, and he just really fell in love with their very bombastic presentation and their life-or-death kind of preaching. Very intense. And of course, that appealed to a 23-year-old. Oh, of course it does. 
Of yeah. course it does. Because you, you think of the world very black and white when you're young um, and, and things are very clear to you. And as you get older, things get more gray and things get uh, harder to, to define. Right. Think, I mean, think of a 23-year-old guy that you know. What... <laughs> I'm thinking of myself at 23. Yeah. You know? So it makes total sense why he was in the right space in his life for this to be extremely appealing to him. So do you think this is typical? Do you see commonalities between your dad's story and the story of some of the famous fundies that we mentioned at the top of the episode? So this road uh, is this is one of the major roads that gets people into fundamentalism. I'm going to have to use an extended analogy. I know y'all hate when I use extended analogies, which is why you're still listening <laughs> to this podcast. People love extended analogies, Sadie. I'm good at extended <laughs> analogies. Them. You are very good at them. So I would like I would like everyone to imagine that fundamentalism is a major city. There are different neighborhoods in the city. There's the IFB neighborhood and the modern evangelical like Hillsong neighborhood. There are other denominations that have their neighborhoods. There's a fundamentalist Mormon neighborhood, which is like way out on the other end of the road. <laughs> but there, there are all these neighborhoods within fundamentalism, and there are several main highways that go through this city. So you can get into Portland on I-5 North or I-5 South, and there are multiple different exits that you can take off of each of those highways to get into the city. You can get into Portland on I-84 West or on 26 East. And then there are also surface streets. You don't have to take a highway to get into Portland. You can get here. If you're coming from Beaverton, you can just drive east on Southwest Barnes Road until it turns into West Burnside and then you're in Portland. You can drive into Portland from Gresham on the other end of Burnside or the other or driving west on Burnside or driving west on Sandy, and that'll get you into Portland. So there are a lot of ways that you can get into a cult. There are a lot of ways that you can get into religious fundamentalism, but some of the roads are bigger and more frequently traveled. Is this making sense? Yes. And okay. I just want to say, I love this analogy here. This makes so much sense. So today I want to talk about those highways into fundamentalism. We'll talk about some of the exits that are most commonly taken we don't have time on one episode to talk about every way that every person has ever gotten into fundamentalism because you could go some some wacky way. <laughs> you know, you could uh, the other day I was coming back from Beaverton and my GPS took me all the way down Vista Avenue and I got to see all the nice, like really expensive houses up in the Southwest Hills. <laughs> but I don't imagine that more than a few hundred people get into Portland using Vista Avenue every day. Thousands and thousands of people use the I-5 bridge to get into Portland every day. So we're going to talk about the big highways, the most common ways that I believe people get involved. So the first one that you brought up, the one that my dad took, was feeling like the world was getting, already being a religious person, feeling like the world was getting more immoral, the religious environment around him was becoming weaker, and he was looking for something stronger. I know I've said this on the show so many times, but he, he was an early 20s preacher. Of course, he didn't ha want anything to do with the gin and tonic of fundamental, or the gin and tonic of American Protestantism. Of course, he wanted the flaming shot of 151. The teachings of Jack Hiles and other IFB leaders were so exciting to him. The way that they preached and how confident they were in their beliefs and con convictions, it gave him hope for American Christianity and for America. My dad graduated high school in 1977. He was just barely too young to get drafted for Vietnam. And 
many of his friends and relatives that he loved did fight in Vietnam. And I think that was a pretty hopeless time to graduate high school in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And I think that fundamentalism and the confidence that they had and the we are going to save America, I think that probably gave him hope that was lacking in his teen years. Confidence attracts young people anyway, and Jack Hiles was nothing if not confident. You know, I find this really relatable. And I I never want to come off like I am saying that getting involved in fundamentalism was a good decision <laughs> because it clearly that was clearly a mistake. My dad and my dad knew that and admitted that and we talked about it openly. But I don't think it's right to just treat people who got involved like that with this as if it's an incomprehensible stupidity because it's not. Especially people who are very young. The reasons that they made that mistake, I think, are clear and understandable. You can't help people if you don't see them as human and if you don't understand where their heads are and where their hearts are and if you don't at least try to empathize with their motivations. So I think that's fair. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I have a hard time resisting the urge to dehumanize people that I truly hate, like Steven Anderson or Jack Scott. But overall on the show, we do a lot of work around humanizing the fundamentalists. These are real people, and often the roads that led them to fundamentalism are full of pain and trauma. And your average fundy isn't like a heartless psychopath like Steven Anderson is anyway. So Exactly. So today we're going to talk a lot about who your average fundy really is and how people like you and me end up in this. If you think back as well to when we talked about fundamental seduction, Mr. Voyle Glover in that book talks about being a really young guy when he got sucked into First Baptist Church of Hammond. I don't have the book on me, but I feel like he said he was like 19 or 20 at the time. So one common path into fundamentalism is this concept of wanting stronger moral standards, wanting something a little tougher, something that really makes you feel something. And this is really relatable because life and making decisions is so much easier when you have a clear sense of what's right and what's wrong. Yeah, and that's definitely something that young people tend to experience. Kelly Haven Stickle actually wrote about this very recently on Instagram in the last couple weeks, I think. She wrote something about how she really enjoys not having to think about her decisions because every decision is a moral one, and she just follows her morals and God and her husband and doesn't have to make a lot of decisions. That's very attractive to young people, especially if they were raised in a cultural environment or a home environment where things felt too unsettled, like there wasn't a clear right or wrong. That brings me to another commonly traveled path, which is people who had traumatic childhood experiences of one kind or another, and fundamentalism promised them something better. Heather Heath has talked about this being her mom's motivation for joining the IBLP and ATI. Her mom had a very traumatic, abusive childhood. And when she got married and wanted to have a family, she wanted something so much better for her children than what she had. And the IBLP offered her exactly that, a blueprint and a plan for how to have a perfect family. Heather's mom didn't have that blueprint at home. She didn't know what a great relationship looked like. She felt like she didn't know how to make a good family. And IBLP said, we have the answers. We have all of these books. Our entire system is about how to make a perfect family. And if you follow our system well enough and you're committed enough, 
you will get exactly the outcome that you want in your family. You've spoken before on the show about how a lot of fundy boys and a lot of fundy girls will have almost the same personality, like an interchangeable personality, almost like mm-hmm. the, the same interests. Do, do you think these two things are related? It's definitely related because it's all part of the system. These are the toys and interests that are approved for girls. These are the toys and interests that are approved for boys. And never the two shall meet. Additionally, though, the other part of this is that these groups are a microcosm. So like, whatever the popular kids within a church group like is going to spread really easily. Because you went to high school with hundreds of people. But if your high school has 50 people in it, whatever the popular kids like, all 50 people are going to know about it. Fundamentalism provides a complete system for living life. You're pressured to live by the whole system, and there are a lot of high-pressure phrases that they will use, which are not coming to mind at the moment, <laughs> but but they will basically tell you, you, you take all of it or you take none of it. You accept everything that we're teaching you, or you don't take any of it. If you're doing one thing that's outside the system, well, that's a sin. And it's probably the reason that you're missing out on God's blessings on your life. So, for example, let's say you're a fundy person. You're going to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You're going soul winning, dressing by their dress code, never drinking, tithing, giving offerings, giving to Faith Promise Missions, sending your kids to Christian school, watching only approved TV, never going to movies. You read your Bible and pray every day, but you just can't give up listening to worldly music on the radio during your commute. Well, then... Anything that goes wrong in your life, from sickness to financial issues to relationship conflict to your car breaking down, any of that, well, it's because you're listening to worldly music and you know that that's a sin and God is withholding his hand of blessing from you because you're willfully sinning. So the same goes for anything on that list. You could be doing everything on the list except for one thing, but that one thing well, that's why God's not blessing you, and that's why bad things are happening to you. The same also goes for anything new that your pastor decides is a sin. So your pastor can just make up new rules at any time. So you're this fundy person that we were just talking about, and you finally give up listening to worldly music in your commute to work. And now the confirmation bias makes you think that nothing bad is happening in your life and that your life is great because of confirmation bias. (laughs) And then if anything bad does happen to you, well, now it's the devil attacking you because you're living for God and you have all this support from your community if anything bad happens to you. But after you've got the worldly music situation sorted out, one day your pastor decides that pattern ties are feminine. Therefore, men shouldn't wear them and men should only wear solid ties. And you show up to church the next week and you're still wearing a pattern tie because you heard him say that and you were like, yeah, that's BS. I'm not doing it. Uh, But you show up the next week wearing a pattern tie. You're sinning because you have been told that this thing is a sin and you're still doing it. And you're also disobeying your pastor's authority. So now you're double sinning. And anything that goes wrong in your life that next week is, well, you're missing out on God's blessings because you're sinning. So that's kind of how the pressure to accept the entire system works. That's, wow. Question. Do you think that this is why there's so much disdain? That I and I see this from evangelicals a lot, um, and fundamentalists a lot. Is I see a lot of disdain towards people for whom 
life is messy. Like people for whom the system doesn't operate as it should. So maybe they have to go into greasier than ideal professions to get by. You know what I'm saying? Example, um, do you remember Eric Garner, mm-hmm. right? Uh, he, um, he was uh, uh, choked to death by the NYPD. He was selling loose cigarettes. Um, he was selling mm-hmm. untaxed cigarettes. Um, aside from all of the racism, of course, the reaction that I remember coming out of the, the evangelical sphere and, and the fundamentalist sphere was, well, he shouldn't have been selling untaxed cigarettes. Yes. Yeah. Well, you shouldn't have broken the rules. So someone who is so poor that both parents absolutely have to work or someone who absolutely has to work on Sunday or on Wednesday night to get enough overtime to feed their, feed and clothe their kids or single mothers or divorced people or people who join the church and can't afford a whole new wardrobe to follow the rules right away. People who drink sometimes because their lives are hard. Like the list goes on and on of people that they will judge. All of these people get judged because they're told if you would just surrender and trust God and follow the system, all of your problems would go away. Well, you say that you have to work on every Wednesday night and sometimes on Sunday to make enough money to provide for your children. But if you would just quit that job that is clearly satanic because they're making you work on Sundays, it's clearly of the devil. If you would just quit that job and trust God to provide you a new job, then God would provide for your family, even if you're unemployed. Now, don't take unemployment because that's welfare and we hate the social gospel. But... (laughs) If mm-hmm. you just quit that job, God will provide you a new job that will be enough to take care of your family. And if you're like, no, I'm not going to quit my job until I have a new one because I have seven children that I have to feed, then you're judged because you don't have enough faith in God to follow the complete system. So a lot of these fundies, in case you didn't catch it, <laughs> what they have is just enough privilege, just a little tiny bit of privilege, just enough to look down on those people who aren't following the whole system. And it gives them a moral justification for treating any kind of marginalized people badly without any understanding of what their situation in life really is. So it's the same classist kind of thought that said, Eric Garner, well, he just shouldn't have been selling untaxed cigarettes. It's that same line of thought that there's a religious justification that's been woven in very tightly. Also, I should probably clarify, I say that fundies have a little bit of privilege because they are mostly white and generally have a very small amount of generational wealth. Like, they're the kind of people, there's not going to be a huge inheritance if someone dies, but your mom and dad can probably pass down their house to you and their house is probably paid off. Like, that's the, the socioeconomic status that we are, on average, talking about. Of course, if they were willing to listen, willing to be a little bit radicalized, you could point out to them that they are still as working class people being jerked around by the actual rich people and they could learn some class solidarity and not be so freaking classist and racist. And, well, you know, (laughs) some would say that they've already been radicalized. True, true. Unfortunately, by they've been radicalized by the hatred of the social gospel. So they have a religious justification for having no class solidarity. Yeah, I mean, well, the religious teachings also, I've noticed, make it possible for them to look down on rich people as well. Right. Because fundamentalism is a complete lifestyle system that only works if people following that system are the only ones doing it correctly. 
the whole thing falls apart if you aren't the only ones with the secret to the only correct way of doing things. So last week, um, you were talking about Paul and Morgan, all of this. Um, you, so you were telling me about how obnoxious you found Paul's smugness. I mean, it, it was pretty obnoxious. I guess it didn't bother me as much because maybe I've I've encountered it from Christians who sort of their attitude towards me was that they have they're the ones with the answers. They know what what the right answer is and they're going to be the ones that have the last laugh in the afterlife. And eventually I would come to see that they were right all along, but then, you know, by then it's too late. Um and I'm right and burning in hell, I guess. Unless they're the ones that say, "Oh, Jews go to heaven too," but like So the IFB and other extreme fundamentalists, they do have that mindset of, well, you'll see when you die and it's too late. Like they're kind of smugly waiting for you to be burning in hell so they can like get off on their sense of being right, which is pretty disgusting. Tisk, 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 you know. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty gross to ever be excited about the idea of someone being in eternal torture. Not saying that I don't enjoy the idea of like serial killers and genocidal people going Stephen to hell like, as as a concept, even though I don't really believe in I'm not sure I really believe in it. As a concept, I do enjoy that. But the idea of enjoying a regular person who believed wrong going to hell is pretty gross to me. But IFB and other extreme fundamentalists, they have that concept, but they also have the concept of, well, you'll see when you die, but you'll also see in this life, because your life on earth is going to be a disaster if you don't follow our path. This is another reason I think they like to send their teenagers off into the parts of town with the worst reputation, because the IFB really had me convinced that everybody in the outside world, outside of the IFB, was living in squalor, getting divorced multiple, multiple times, dealing with heartbreak, having kids they couldn't care for properly, struggling with addictions, and that none of that existed within our bubble. Both of both of which concepts are incorrect. But that was the majority of what I saw in the outside world. When I did go into nicer places, nicer neighborhoods, and see people who had their lives together more... What I was taught about them is, well, they're lucky for now. They are having a good time in their life right now, but they will still face a greater incidence of personal disaster and heartbreak than someone who was IFB. They will still have a worse life than someone who is IFB. Is there an assumption that if somebody is rich and not Christian, that they achieved their riches through ill-gotten gains? Yeah. So they're either working for Satan or they are lying and cheating their way to the top or some other nefarious activity. So thinking back to people who had traumatic or abusive childhoods and they want something better for their own family, their own kids, a lot of people who had that type of childhood dealt with a lack of structure. Maybe their parents weren't able for whatever reason, like neglect or addiction or poverty or whatever, to provide their kids with consistency and structure. Their parents may also not have been capable for for many reasons of teaching them life skills, like financial skills, cooking, and how to manage your life in general. And these people see the IFB. And there's not only a highly structured life and lifestyle, there's a comprehensive blueprint for living life. Not only that, it's also promising them a perfect outcome. So to people who came from really tough backgrounds, it seems like a great solution. 
here's a plan, here's structure, just follow this plan perfectly and your kids will never feel about you the way that you feel about your parents. This is the best and only way to pull your kids out of the cycle of abuse that you experienced, and everything we do is focused on making the best life for children. And of course that sounds appealing. Of course it does. I am not a psychologist, but I have been to therapy, and one of the general concepts that I have been told is that when humans go through a physically or emotionally traumatic experience, they often act out in other ways in order to try to take control of the situation. So if somebody gets robbed or they get broken up with by a partner that they really love, or they have a family member die, they might start cleaning their house very thoroughly, or they might develop an eating disorder, or they might do something else that makes them feel like they have full control over what is happening in their life. Exactly. And what is more controlling than a high control group or cult? So speaking of psychologists, I do think that this leads to one more highway to fundamentalism that I want to talk about before the offering break. I think the path that Kelly Haven Stickle took into fundamentalism is maybe adjacent to this. Having read a lot of her Tumblr, her Instagram posts, especially the recent posts she made about not wanting to think too much and enjoying the security she feels because her husband and God are making most of her decisions, I think her religious obsession is a way that she copes with mental health struggles. So we know better than to stigmatize all people with mental illness as unemployed or lazy or people who don't have families or lives. Mental illness can certainly steal a person's ability to have a job. It can certainly steal their motivation and their relationships. And those are very real effects of mental illness, but that's far from being the case for everyone. Plenty of people with mental health issues find coping mechanisms from very healthy coping mechanisms that work well for them to maybe not so great coping mechanisms that are destructive. But many people with mental illness find something that gets them through and allows them to be functional or semi-functional and live a life that they're happy with. I think fundamentalism becomes that coping mechanism for some people. And by the way, I do think this is what happened to Andrea Yates. I always want to center her over Rusty in the conversation because her struggles should have been paramount. But also, being married to somebody who has major depression or postpartum depression is not easy. And certainly what Andrea went through was extremely difficult. I think that the Yates fell further into fundamentalism. They spiraled because it provided both of them a way to cope. For Andrea to cope with her mental health difficulties and for Rusty to try to regain control when he felt like things were out of control. So say you are this person, you're feeling lost, you are feeling like the world around you is extremely chaotic, and you are looking for some control over your life. How would you find yourself in the IFB if you weren't already religious or if you weren't already IFB adjacent? So I think there are a lot of, a lot of ways that you might get onto that particular highway. So maybe you're approached by an IFB soul winner during a really bad mental health time. You visit the church because you're looking for anything that could help. And if you were having a really bad mental health day on a Saturday and you were walking down the street and somebody walked up to you and said, I've been sent to you from God and I have all the answers for your life, you might be in a vulnerable place and inclined to believe them or at least be willing to give it a try. You visit the church because you're desperate for anything that can help and you're attracted to the sense of structure 
and the joy that you perceive everyone there to have. And do you want that for yourself? Because of course you do, because you're in a really bad mental health place. Maybe you were raised religious and you have predispositions towards something like religious OCD. And since the IFB is basically institutionalized religious OCD, it fits with things that you were already thinking about. You already had the seeds planted in your mind for, I need to do everything perfectly by a prescriptive set of rules. And if I do that, then bad things won't happen to me. And if I don't do it, then bad things will happen to me. And then adding in the religious factor is a natural step. Maybe you're depressed and you meet someone who is IFB, maybe at work or in your family or wherever, and they are projecting this extreme happiness and joy. And they're talking about how everything is going great for them all the time because that's what IFB people are told to do. And you think, well, maybe if I try out their church, I will be happy like they are. I think that last one is the one that I heard about the most often when I was IFB, both from both in the sense of this is something you should be doing and in the sense of this is how I joined the church. We were told that we always had to be smiling, always joyful, because people in the world are watching you. And when they see how joyful you are, they will want what you have. And I knew plenty of people who converted that way. Of course, it's very difficult to project that kind of constant happiness if you're not happy. And that in itself leads to mental health problems because of the disconnect between the feelings you feel and the feelings you're supposed to be showing. Dude, that sounds so draining. It is. It it's also to do with why a lot of autistic people who grew up fundy miss an early diagnosis and then end up getting diagnosed as adults because masking is actually a tenet of the religion and it's something that is drilled into you from birth. Dude, growing up neurodivergent in the IFB seems like its own flavor of hell. It just does. Say you decide to attend a fundamentalist church service. What's going to happen? If you're a new person, they haven't seen you before. So any way that you get in, whatever highway you take to get there, there is a pattern and a system that's going to try to get you into the church. They have this pattern and the manipulation down to an absolute science. So immediately you'll be love bombed. People will be so friendly and so warm. You'll immediately be given responsibilities and asked to do things. So you visit for a Sunday morning service and somebody buddies up to you and asks you to come back for Sunday night. You go to Sunday night, you get invited back for Wednesday night, and then members will use manipulation tactics. If you've if someone has ever tried to sell you a timeshare, it'll be a lot like that. <laughs> so they'll say that they'll be saving you a seat. They'll be texting you throughout the week if you give them your number to say how excited they are to see you on Wednesday night. It's an absolutely seamless transition between love bombing and the beginning of getting you involved and then making sure you have a job, a function in the church. People will invite you to come out soul winning once you're attending regularly. Someone might ask you to clean the church with them or be their assistant for their Sunday school class. So I've read uh, through research for um, an upcoming episode that um, you guys will hear in the coming months. Um, I've read that there there is this theory that people feel more connection to somebody if they do something in service of that person rather than if they get something from that person. So the theory is that you'll feel a stronger connection to the church if you're the one serving the church rather than if the church is serving you. Do you feel like there is truth to this theory? Yeah, absolutely. This is the primary tactic that fundamentalists use to get people who visit more than a few times to stick around. I've seen it time and time again. So what happens if you're early in the process and you have to tell somebody, I can't make Wednesday, can't make Sunday, 
night or something. I'm having dinner with my sister. We planned it a month ago. Say something like that comes up. So the first thing they would try to do is get you to move the dinner to a different night. So they'll pressure you to move it to Saturday night. Um, I think the most common thing, actually, now that I think about it, the most common thing that fundies would be told to say is, that's great. Have dinner before church and bring your sister to church with you on Sunday night. So they're not going to play hardball with a new member. They're not going to pull out that if you can't find a way to make it, then you are not in the light of the Holy Spirit. They're not going to pull that out. Absolutely not, because the new member might still not be sure about whether they believe in the whole Holy Spirit thing. A new person doesn't have the buy-in required to use threats like that. Fundies really like instead to hide how fundy they are until you're in too deep to back out gracefully. So quick TW for abusive partners. It's like being in an abusive relationship. It's not as common for a relationship to be abusive from the very beginning. Much more often, an abusive partner will be all sweet all the time until you move in with them, until you're financially tied to them, or in the case of hetero couples, until you have a baby with them. And then once you're on the hook, you're vulnerable, you've put time and effort into this, and it would be logistically difficult to leave, then that person will ramp up their abuse and show their true colors. This isn't the only parallel that we've found between cults and abusive relationships. This is also part of the reason why we've heard from so many cult survivors who find themselves in abusive relationships after leaving. It's really sick. Yeah, because that's what they've been taught that love is and what a good relationship looks like. It's the love bombing at the beginning and it gets them. And it's mm-hmm. So once you have responsibilities in the church, not only are you feeling that increased connection to the church that you were talking about, but also that's when the love bombing turns into talking about how much they depend on you. So this is still love bombing, but it's a, a more manipulative form of it even still. So maybe um, you attend for a while and someone says, oh, you should clean the church with me. Um, We clean the church on Saturday nights and we can spend our Saturday nights together. And then after we're done cleaning the church, we'll go and I'll buy you dinner. And you start doing that. And then you have jobs and, and responsibilities that you do every week to clean the church. The pastor might thank you from the pulpit for cleaning the church. He might praise you for how great you are at getting involved. And that's a form of love bombing. But the pastor might also use a different form of manipulation against his other members by saying something like, well, I wish some of you who have been here for 10 years would work as hard as so-and-so did who just joined six months ago. And I know I probably triggered some of you on that. (laughs) But publicly praising one person at the expense of another person or group of people's public humiliation is a extremely common abusive, manipulative tactic that IFB preachers use. I would bet money that every one of our listeners who has ever been IFB has heard that happen. Praising one person and putting down another person at the same time. Because that, it, there are so many things that the functions that that serves, the person who's been praised now has to keep up their current level of whatever it is that they're doing. The person who has been put down has to step it up or deal with the societal shame. The people who are in the middle, who are coasting, not doing above and beyond, but not not doing anything either, those people get a warning. You can be like this person who's over, who's excelling, or you can be like this other person who's underperforming. And there is praise for one thing, and there is condemnation for another thing. So the people in the middle will 
step it up as well. So it's an either or thing. Yeah. You can't be. Yeah. Okay. Right. Because, um, because Ephraim is like a cake not turned and because God spits lukewarm water out of his mouth. It's Bible stuff. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. Being lukewarm is like a huge, huge IFB thing. I think it's one of the. <clears throat> I think it's in one of the prophets, but it could be somewhere else. But someone says, someone is speaking for God and says, You are lukewarm. You are not hot or cold. I wish that you were either hot or cold because you're lukewarm. I will spew you out of my mouth. Somebody's going to have to give me the reference because I'm not Googling today. So all of a sudden, you have responsibilities at church that you feel like you have to apologize if you miss a week. You have to let people know if you're going to be out for a week. You might even have a responsibility so important that you can't miss a week without asking someone to cover for you. Your personal time is cl- is quickly deteriorating. You're busy. You're tired. You're being love-bombed all the time. And you are not going to think, I should maybe check out this church's Yelp reviews and see if someone has been seriously messed up by the abuse here. You're not going to have time or desire to do that until much time has passed And months or years down the road, maybe you start to see the cracks in the facade. Maybe you've met someone who was hurt by this church and they warned you. But by that point, the IFB is counting on several things to keep you in. So they're counting on you having been convinced of the religious teachings. They're counting on you having responsibilities at church that you would feel guilty for not fulfilling. Remember Paul Sand, who quit his Sunday school class and how hard Jack Hiles guilt tripped him over that? Yeah, and then he went and became a murderer. Right. So you're guilty if you don't do your responsibilities, but you're also scared to quit them because you might become a murderer. <laughs> and they're depending on you having interpersonal relationships that you wouldn't want to break. They're depending on sunk cost fallacy. Well, I've put four or five years into this church. I can't just walk away now. And they're depending on you having listened to the teaching about how all negativity comes from the devil and all those Yelp reviewers are lying Satanists. So at this point, have they already done the whole, okay, you can't wear pants to work thing? Yeah. So early on in the process, church members will take you under their wing and work you through each different thing that you're supposed to change. So someone might take you out shopping and pay for you to buy a bunch of skirts. This is love bombing. They might tell you that you can, yo, you can be a Sunday school teacher assistant and you can sing in the choir. But you can't do either one of those things if you still wear pants to work or school or anywhere else. So they're offering you responsibilities and status, but only if you'll give something up for it. And then that adds to the sunk cost fallacy because then it's like, well, I, you know, I threw away or burned $500 worth of pants and (laughs) now all I have is skirts. And do I really want to leave and go back to wearing pants because I don't even have any anymore? They'll have you throw all your pants in a bonfire in front of the church, which is manipulation because they're convincing you to destroy your possessions and make a physical sacrifice for the church. And then which everyone- also when you, idolatry. Yeah, true. And then when you, when you do burn your pants at a bonfire, everyone will clap for you and celebrate you and cry about how wonderful you are. That's more love bombing. And then- You gave up the pants, so now you're allowed to be a Sunday school teacher assistant and you're allowed to sing in the choir. So, of course, you're going to accept those responsibilities because you've already made the sacrifice for them. But now you have the responsibility. You have to be at church three times a week because otherwise you'll lose your position. You have to be in the Sunday school teacher meeting. You have to be at choir practice. You have to sing in the choir. You have to assist in Sunday school. 
And if you decide to go back to wearing pants, you will lose those responsibilities and you will face shame and you will lose all the friendships that you made through those responsibilities. So you follow the rules to keep the responsibilities so that you keep getting love bombed and you don't end up as that guy that the pastor humiliated in front of everybody in, in order to love bomb you at the very beginning of this process. So they will just work you through anything that you do that is considered a sin, kind of methodically. So they'll start with the big sins. Like if you're living with a partner you're not married to, or if you're working as a bartender, they will start by encouraging you to get your own place. And they'll tell you that God will bless you financially if you tithe. So as long as you tithe, you'll be able to afford an apartment. Maybe even someone in the church has rental properties and they will set you up there and let you rent from them. And then they'll encourage you to get a new job that isn't alcohol related. Maybe even someone in the church owns a business and will offer you a job. Do you see where this is going? Yeah. And so you're dependent on them for your everything. Housing and your <laughs> Yes. Man. Scary. Ah, wow. And now they have the leverage to continue working you through giving up the smaller, quote unquote, smaller sins. So they have the leverage to make sure that you don't wear pants if you're an AFAB person, to make sure you don't go to the movies or drink, to get all of these parts of your life in line with the system. There is a threat that God will not bless you if you don't follow the system, but there's also this promise of, well, God will bless you if you do follow it, and you'll get so much love from this community if you do follow it. So at what point does the church involvement start alienating you from your friends and family? I think as soon as you buy into it, because they will actually tell you that being alienated from quote-unquote worldly people is a good sign that you're progressing and growing in your faith. They will point to Bible verses like Matthew 10, 22, uh, which is, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he who endureth to the end shall be saved. And they'll say, see, Jesus said that your family and friends would reject you if you followed him. If they're rejecting you, then you're doing something right. Good job. So the rejection that you're actually experiencing in real life might be, hey, we're going to the movies. But if your new religion says you can't go to the movies, I guess we'll go without you. But the IFB will tell you they're rejecting you. They're persecuting you. You're doing the right thing for Jesus. So how long does this whole process process take? So like from first day you set foot in an IFB church to being completely sold out, burning all your pants, not going to movies anymore. I think it totally depends on the person. I have seen people go from getting witnessed to on the street and getting saved to being in church in full dress code and going out soul winning, giving up sins left and right, and deciding to go to Hiles Anderson for a year. I've seen all of that happen in like two to six months. Wow. But I've also seen it take several years. It really depends on the person. If you are desperately looking for something to help with some real that you're going through, and someone comes by with a slick elevator pitch and says that they can fix all of your problems, there are a lot of people who would take that deal. A lot. So we are incredibly overdue to go take up the offering. Let's go do that. And when we come back, we're going to talk about one more highway into fundamentalism that we haven't discussed, and it's a big one. Sounds great. Let's do that. 
Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, that group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. We are back from our break, and we have talked about two ways in which people get roped into fundamentalism. Sadie, what's the third way? So I would say we've talked about three ways already because we talked about people who are looking for something exciting and real. We talked about people with past trauma who are looking for something better. And then we talked about people who are using fundamentalism to cope with mental health issues. Oh, okay. I guess I lumped two and three together. Well, they overlap. I, I think it's really, really common for somebody to have two of these things. But however you want to count it, the other major highway into fundamentalism that I want to talk about today is actually one that we've seen played out on TV more than once. So I want to dial it way back to the story of Jim Bob and Michelle Duggar. Thankfully, the whole family has become pretty irrelevant since... um... Everything that happened? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, everything. (laughs) Lost their TV show. Jim Bob lost the primary. Josh went to prison for being an pedophile. And Geronimo lost his election to a Democrat. (laughs) Yeah, all of that. (laughs) But do you remember the story of how Jim Bob and Michelle became involved with fundamentalism? They had a miscarriage, right? That was the... So I think a lot of our listeners would be aware of this because it was even featured on 19 Kids and Counting. This is a story that Jim, Bob, and Michelle fully own up to. They were not always fundamentalists, although they were Christians. Jim, Bob, and Michelle didn't court. They dated and they dated other people before they met each other. Michelle famously talks about how she was a high school cheerleader and how she used to mow the lawn in her bikini. So as they were dating and after they got married, they were involved in church. They were a Christian family, but they weren't living by the ideal peace system in any way, shape, or form. Michelle, early in their marriage, she got pregnant and that pregnancy didn't turn out well. Well, the the baby was born. The baby was healthy, but it grew up to be a nasty pedophile. She went on uh, birth (laughs) control. (laughs) Sorry, I had to take a crack at him. 
he is a pedophile, so. Yes. You know. Um, Michelle went on birth control after giving birth to Josh, but she got pregnant even though she was on, she was on the pill. She did eventually miscarry that pregnancy, which she and Jim Bob named Caleb. And you're right. It was after that miscarriage that they started to re-examine their religious views and become more religious. A doctor incorrectly told them that the miscarriage had happened because she was on birth control. And somewhere in there, they were exposed to quiverful teachings. So with all of that together, they became convinced that this difficult and painful miscarriage happened because they weren't trusting God with how many children they would have. They were taking matters into their own hands by using birth control. We don't know exactly what year Jim, Bob, and Michelle got involved with the IBLP and the ATI, but it was within a few years after this miscarriage happened. So the highway into fundamentalism that we're talking about here... I'm going to call it the the adverse life experiences highway or the trauma- traumatic events as an adult highway. I do think it has some different lanes. So one lane might be something bad happened to me and I feel like it's my fault and I want to fix whatever I did wrong that made this happen to me. The other lane might be something bad happened to me and I need an explanation why it happened. Even if the explanation is that it's my fault, that's okay. I have to have an answer. And feeling like something is your fault is very common in times of grieving something that has happened. It's one of the natural ways that your brain tries to process pain that you couldn't have even imagined before you experienced it. It's also a logical and pragmatic thing to do because it's psychologically going to be rooted in the natural response of how do I prevent bad thing from happening to me again in the future? Mm -hmm. So for someone like me who lost a parent... The feeling might be, I feel like my parents' death is my fault somehow. And that's not an uncommon feeling. That's a thing that a lot of us have pop into our heads when we're in extreme grief. But it becomes a way into fundamentalism if you're thinking, my, I feel like my parents' death is my fault somehow, and I think it happened because I'm not a very good person, and I need to be a better person because the guilt is consuming me. So the IFB comes along if you happen to be exposed to these fundamentalist teachings at any point in this grieving process. Fundamentalism says, well, probably God didn't take away your parent to punish you, but God took your parent away to teach you a lesson. God knew Uh, that if he let someone you love very much die, you would come back to God and start living a more righteous life. And that makes the person feel way better because it's not like, oh, it's your fault and they died because you're a bad person. It's, well, they died because God loves you and God wants you back. And God wants you back so much that God would kill your parent to get you back. And now it makes it feel like their death had meaning rather than just being right like a random heart attack or a car crash or and and from the outside like we see how that is a super shit thing to tell somebody that's so but when you're in that phase and you're like in heavy grief it makes a lot more sense because you're psychologically super vulnerable feeling a need to ask why something happened is also extremely common in grief like why me for me why my dad why did this happen to me and what is fundamentalism great at They're great at having an answer for everything. So you say, why did my parent die? This sucks. And the IFB says, well, your parent died primarily because of the sin curse, because Adam sinned. But in particular, God had a plan for why your parent died. God chose the exact date and time. This wasn't random or unplanned. It is all a part of God's exact plan for the world from creation until the end of the world. 
in order for this sort of teaching to find a hold, do you have to already be open to it? I think open to it is a fantastic way to put it, because if you don't, if you do not believe in God, you don't believe in any kind of afterlife, then any of these ideas are going to be a real tough sell, no matter how much you're hurting. Even if you have the natural normal feelings of like, is this my fault? And why did this happen to me? It's still going to be a real tough sell for somebody to say, the God you don't believe in did it on purpose. I think maybe this has something to do with why Christian fundamentalism has so much more of a hold in the United States than it does in most other countries, because so many people here in the U.S. are culturally aware of Christianity, even if they don't necessarily practice or go to church. Because even if the person in America, especially in like Midwest or the South, even if they don't identify as a Christian and don't practice Christianity, it is real. There's a real good chance that they went to church a few times with their grandparents, that they learned a little bit about religion in school. They're, they're culturally aware of the concept of Christianity. So going back to the Duggar parents, they were sad about having a miscarriage, which is very normal and understandable. And it seems to me that they were asking both of these questions, like, is it my fault and why did it happen? Also, Jim Bob's dad had substance abuse problems and seems to have been a pretty angry and unstable person. So Jim Bob was on two highways. He was on the unstable childhood and I want something better for my kids highway. And he was also on the something bad happened and I think it's my fault highway. So that's kind of how these things, they overlap. So Growing Goodings is a social media account that we have not talked about on this podcast. Uh, the person behind the account is named Alex. She is a former like rave festival EDM person. She's got a lot of tattoos. Like That was very much her life for a while in her late teens and early 20s. Uh, she was a single mom when she met her husband, and her husband adopted her oldest daughter. And once they got married, the two of them wanted to have a lot of kids. Uh, they were not religious at the time. She was she was nominally Christian. He was an atheist at the time. Uh, they ended up needing IVF. The family went through a lot, just a lot, just um, oh, reproductive trauma. Uh, no details, just a lot of. Sh- so they had uh, late miscarriages, like fourteen, fifteen weeks with an IVF pregnancy. Oh, that is heart rending. Yeah. That is heartbreaking. Like any any loss of a wanted pregnancy can be incredibly difficult, especially for the person carrying the pregnancy. That is, it's a nightmare no matter what. But a fourteen week loss with an IVF pregnancy, my god, that is terrible. And then after that loss, she spontaneously conceived twins. So she got pregnant without IVF, which was not something she knew was possible for her, and it was twins. And then one of the twins died in utero, and she thought she was going to continue the pregnancy with the other twin, which is a brave and tough choice. And then she miscarried the other twin. Oh, God. So there's just been a whole dump truck of religious trauma, or sorry, reproductive trauma for this poor woman. And there have been like other miscarriages outside of that, and like other difficulties getting pregnant, and multiple rounds of IVF, and a lot, a lot. So Alex was always, you know, semi-religious and her feed was really interesting because she was interested in stay-at-home parenting and homeschooling and the homestead lifestyle much more in the way that Kelly is. It's not deeply connected to her religious views, at least not two or three years ago. 
Also, her husband was an atheist. So being in what what amounts to an interfaith marriage was something that she talked about and she was really open about it and they were accepting of each other's views. She talked really vulnerably about her past with eating disorders and how that affected her. But after miscarrying the twins, she really turned a corner into a new kind of fundiness for her. She changed how she dressed. She wore head coverings. She started dressing her girls only in dresses and skirts and talking a lot about modesty and posting transphobic takes, which wasn't a thing for her before. One really interesting thing about her is that she leaves the old pictures up. So there's all these pictures of her back when she was a rave, like EDM person, even though she dresses very conservatively and talks about modesty now. We have not covered her on our show because she's barely fundy. She does follow and preach a lot of fundy-ish rules, her dress and her behavior. And she does talk about the Bible a lot, but I don't see what I'm missing to call her fundy fundy is the literal, there's only one right way to interpret this interpretation of the Bible as a personal rule book for me, for my life. I also don't see quite as much separation from the world or like separation from other Christians who don't follow the rules as I would normally see if I would call somebody fundy. However, I bring her up because she's a great example of people who use religion to cope with mental health and also of people who are grieving and use fundamentalism to answer the normal questions that come up around that. Like, is it my fault or why did this happen? As far as we know, she didn't become extremely religious as a response to any kind of childhood trauma. It is because of that adult trauma of her infertility and miscarriages she seems to get a ton of comfort out of the idea that those experiences were God's will, and she can lean on the idea that this wasn't just random chance, this is all part of God's plan. So one common theme that I'm seeing between her and Michelle Duggar, um, I should say this is a medically inaccurate idea, but the idea is that if you do a lot of partying in your teens and your 20s, or if you take birth control, you're going to ruin your fertility for when you want to settle down and actually start a family. So this then becomes an imperative. If you're raising children, this becomes an imperative for your daughters, at least to keep them on the straight and narrow so that they can keep their options open when they get older. And Mm -hmm. this also just plays perfectly into like a, a moralistic sermon illustration. For sure. And it is also misogynist because it reduces AFAB people to baby carrying machines. Right. It's just... Because I... And I feel really strongly about this because I am a person who knew from a young age that I absolutely wanted to carry birth and raise children. And that has always been... I mean, I have broken up with partners because they were sure that they did not want to have children. And it was something that was a a deal breaker for both of us that I absolutely did and they absolutely did not. And I think that's extremely valid. I fully support people who know from a young age that they do not want to be parents because I have known from a young age that I did. And if it is valid for me to know and now be living out that dream of having kids, it is valid for somebody else to know that they do not want to do it and for them to live out their dream as well. So Alex from Growing Goodings, she talks about her eating disorder as well as something that the doctors told her that she would never be able to have children because of. At some point, I want to do an episode about fundies um, using trying to use junk science to prove their religious concepts, or at least to try to prove the divine intent of 
religious mm-hmm. co- you know what i'm saying yeah th- like, that is a very real and big thing similar to Kenthoven, but not uh, uh quite that wacky well, the thing is that I, I think that the creation science movement opens up fundamentalism to a lot of junk science that is not creationism related. Because someone like uh, Dr. Oz, f- him, will say, Ginkgo biloba has now been proven to help you lose weight. And then the fundies will take their creation science and apply that and say, God created this wonderful herb to help us lose weight and never right. bother to like look at the science behind it. Or if they like look at the science behind it, they don't have an adequate science education to be able to say, okay, well, wh- what's going on with the study? Is the study a double blind? Is the study um, a like what's the methodology here? What's the data set look like? Is is this repeatable? You know, stuff. Right, because Rebecca doesn't like, teach that. <laughs> so speaking of junk science, I think we have really good evidence also for the Plath family coming into fundamentalism because of a tragic experience. We've talked about the death of their son Joshua, and even on the show when we did the season four recap, Micah straight up asked Kim, "Why did you raise us the way that you did?" And Kim said, "We thought it was better to err on the side of too strict than to not be protective enough over you." So they were worried about their living children, which is extremely normal as a reaction to losing a child, very understandable. But that worry led them into extreme religious beliefs and extreme practices of isolation that really damaged their living children in the long run. Yeah, and that's just how a lot of parents are. Although, like, because, I mean, the Plath took it way, 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 way further, but a lot of parents just err on the side of being really strict and really overprotective because of the the fear, because of the anxiety. Yeah, and I'm glad you said that because this is a theme. Fundamentalism preys on people who are exceptionally weak, and that's not something that I want to overlook in this episode. Fundamentalism absolutely preys on people with disabilities, physical and mental, uh, people in dire financial straits, people who are having a very tough time in life. But fundamentalism also preys on people having normal human reactions to life experiences. You had a rough childhood and you want to do better for your kid? That's normal. You are grieving and you need answers and you need a way to cope with the guilt that you feel around a personal tragedy and cope with the fact that this personal tragedy has happened. That is normal. This is normal. You struggle with mental health and you feel that you need more structure in your life and it would be nice to feel like everything was pre-planned for you. Also normal. All of these are normal human reactions to normal things that people go through. The pattern is that fundamentalism preys on them. So you've been through a lot of personal difficulties in your life after leaving fundamentalism. Was there ever a time when you wanted to go back? Did you ever miss the sense of control over every aspect of your life? Absolutely. And I'm honestly, I'm not even ashamed to say that. There were several points, and I'm sure there will be in the future, where the brainwashing gets to me and I think, well, maybe bad things are happening to me because I left. And maybe if I go back and be really good again, then God will bless me. There have been times where I felt like the decisions you have to make when someone else isn't making your decisions for you were too overwhelming and too difficult. And I really missed back when I just had a rule book to make decisions with and did not have to think so hard. 
what would you say the antidote is to this kind of thinking? So first, if you feel this in tough times, if you have left fundamentalism and you get in a tough time and you think, well, maybe I should go back, I want you to release yourself from the guilt of feeling that way. When I get these feelings, I am not beating myself up. Like, Sadie, how stupid can you possibly be from wanting to get back or wanting to go back? I realize that that reaction was programmed into me through brainwashing and that having that feeling or having that reaction does not make me a bad person. But the antidote is relying on and trusting your new beliefs. If you're a person who ended up as a non-believer, atheist, agnostic, or otherwise, rely on the logic and the knowledge of yourself that got you to that belief. If you're a person who ended up as a believer in a much more merciful and less petty God, a God who made you the way that you are and gives you a lot of leeway on how you live your life as long as you are as kind and loving as you possibly can be, Rely on the faith that pulled you through that massive personal transition and the faith that you now have in that loving and merciful God. You were smart enough, whether you ended up as a believer or not, if you have come to a new belief, you were smart enough and brave enough to get yourself from there to where you are now. And you can do it again if you need to. So my antidote to that kind of thinking is remembering that I don't believe and a small and petty God who would hurt me because I broke commandments that were needlessly obscure, and that I fully believed with all my God-given logic were intended for a certain culture at a certain time. I do not believe in a God who would hurt me or remove kindness from me when I was genuinely doing my best, because even in my humanity, I can't imagine wanting to hurt my child or withhold anything from my child if they were doing their best. So actually, yesterday— I was dusting the house, and Chuck was interested in what I was doing, so I handed her the duster, and she was fascinated. She wanted to dust the record cabinet, so I handed her the duster, and I tried to show her how to do it. She missed a lot of spots, and she flung a lot of dust around the house, and I was so thrilled with her effort. (laughs) I took like 20 pictures. I sent them to everybody I know. I was so thrilled. I had no thought in the moment of trying to make her dust perfectly. She's eight. She's 19 months old. (laughs) 18 months old. (laughs) I was just over the moon that she wanted to help with what I was doing and that she was interested in dusting. It was adorable. And I believe in a God like that, not a God who disdains our best efforts because they aren't perfect. I believe in a God who's thrilled that we're trying as long as we're doing it with love. So that's the antidote for me, along with remembering all of the reasons that I left fundamentalism to begin with. I acknowledge that some parts of that belief structure are comforting and familiar, but I remember that it is an unsafe, corrupt, toxic, and manipulative environment, and I remember all of the miserable reasons that I would never want to go back to that. But your reasons for leaving may be different from mine, and your new belief may be different from mine. That's okay. Rely on whatever those are for you. If those thoughts of going back come up, rely on your new belief and your logic and self-reliance that got you there. I know a lot of what I see on Instagram, and maybe this is just the nature of social media, but I see it especially from like Christian family influencers, is... There's a lot of content that goes out of its way to make life look simple, or even if life is difficult, 
um, to kind of glorify the difficult things that are happening in life. Mm-hmm. Um, but that mostly it looks simple and to make it look like there's no chaos on the other side of the fence, even with five kids, no chaos. I think so. This could be because Christian influencers believe that their religion requires them to always have a happy face and always be presentable and polished. But on the other hand, I think Christian influencers may be, like all influencers, may be presenting a certain a certain level of peace and perfection because that's how they cope themselves with the chaos that is in everybody's life. And that's how their followers cope with the chaos that's in everybody's life. I'm just remembering an episode of The Office. Do you remember when Dwight gets on Second Life and he makes himself be a paper supply salesman in Second Life? Yes. Like like a fantasy version of your own life that you created on the internet that's that's I mean mm-hmm. like life like life is chaotic. There's no escaping from that and it kind of sucks but that's just how it is. That's kind of Yeah, and the- fundamentalism has a defined, clear, and scientific system for manipulating people who are experiencing the chaotic parts of life and turning them into loyal followers. I really hope this has been informative as to why and how people get into fundamentalism. Like I said at the top of the show, these are the highways. These are the things that I have noticed over a lot of years of observation that are the most common ways that people get in. If you just like got on the metaphorical road and drove without any particular direction in mind, this is a place that you might end up. But there will always be people who came in from a side street or some back alley or their GPS quit working and they might not even know quite how they ended up in the neighborhood. So this isn't everyone's story, but this is what I see as some of the biggest ways that people get sucked in. Also, props to Sadie for continuing that extended metaphor all the way through the entire episode. It was a good metaphor. It worked. I really like extended metaphors. And when I say extended, I mean extended. Over the whole episode. And I think it's like... You know who used to do that in sermons? Your dad. Bingo. Oh, man. Just paying tribute to to David Carpenter every single week when we do the show. Fantastic man. Next week... We are doing an episode that we've wanted to do for a while. I think when Sadie and I first started doing the podcast, uh, when we were first like, let's do a podcast, let's write down 50 episode topics. This one was on it. This was like one of those first. I think you're right. So when we first started the show two years ago, we said we want to do an episode about the Simpsons and religion. We're talking about specifically Christianity on our favorite TV show. Um And I'm really excited for this one. It's going to be a lot of fun. I think I'm most excited about talking about Bart selling his soul and talking about Ned Flanders, Bob Jones University attendance. Yes. But there's so much to get into there. It's going to be extremely fun. And it's going to be a nice break before our Treehouse of Horror. I mean, our spooky Halloween content that's coming up. Yeah. Y'all know we love our spooky Halloween content. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. No, so the next our next month of podcast episodes is all planned out now, and I'm I'm looking at the list right now. I'm gonna tell you every episode that we have is going to absolutely slap, guaranteed. Yeah, so but I'm super excited for the the one that actually comes out on Halloween. That's one of the ones that I think was on our very first list too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So oh excited. man, oh I know which I know which one you're talking. It's really exciting. Anyway, um, 
Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show. As always, you can join our Patreon for an extended, uncensored, and ad-free version of most of our podcast episodes. And it also comes out a day early, so you get that as well. You can also join our Facebook group, join in the discussion with our fans. And if you you want to share memes, you want to share personal stories, you can do that there as well, as well as on our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. Both great places to share your stories. Sadie, uh, anything else I'm forgetting before... Mm. No. Okay. Um. Yeah. Uh, if you want to follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram, it is at Leaving Eden Podcast. On Twitter, it is at Leaving Eden Pod. Sadie, will you plug your social media? Absolutely. You can follow me on Twitter at Hell Yes Sadie. You can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music and on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. And you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N. Thank you so much for tuning in. You guys have a great day. Bye-bye. But old rolling river of time me into many days No regrets, no Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.